So I'm now going to read um, for us uh, the passage. It's Lamentations chapter four. Um, let me encourage you to, uh, the words are going to be on the screen, but you may want to have a Bible with you or next to you um, as the words won't necessarily be on the screen when Andy's talking about them. But Lamentations chapter four uh, in its entirety. Um, and then um, I'm going to hand over to Andy, who's going to um, show what he's prepared from this passage with us. Um, it says this, how the gold has lost its luster, the fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at the head of every street. How the precious sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like sapphires. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Wrapped with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's people, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets like men who are blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, men cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honour, the elders no favour. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers we watched for a nation that could save us. Men stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, 
O daughter of Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed, you will be drunk and stripped naked. O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end, he will not prolong your exile. But, O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin and expose your wickedness. I might just pray for Andy as he now takes up the whole screen, if that's all right. And then um, over to you, mate. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I, I recognise that that is a, a passage with which I'm less familiar in a book that I am less familiar with. But I thank you that your word is alive and living uh, today. Um, and as Andy speaks to us now, I pray that you would guide him uh, in what he says and that um, you would bring out from what he has prepared the words that you want us to hear this evening. Lord, that you'd speak to us individually in our own homes and that you'd be speaking to us as a body of believers here in Erdington at Oikos. Um, so we just ask that your, your will be done. Um, would our hearts be open to hear and receive from you now? Amen. Amen. Well, again, really, really good to be with you. Um, ben, can you do me a favour and just put everyone tiled on the screen just for a moment as we start? And then I'm going to ask some of you to be super brave. Um, you don't have to do this, but if you are fully clothed, can you just take your, put your camera on for a second? And I just want us to, to look at each other. And the reason for that is there are some good things about Zoom, aren't there? So um, some of you I can see are sitting comfortably on your sofa. You might have a cup of tea. Um, you might even have like a cheeky glass of wine. Um, I could be um, stood here today preaching in my pajamas and you would never be the wiser for it. Um, I am actually wearing proper clothes, although I do have very bright yellow socks. But there are challenges too, aren't there? So I just want us to remind ourselves, and this is important for the Book of Lamentations, that we aren't individuals listening to a podcast, um, but we are a church family wrestling with God's word. So what we want you to do is to pick out somebody that you can see on the screen. And it could be anyone. So we might have one person here who gets picked on again and again and again. And I just want you to pray for them. And I want you to pray that God would speak to them this evening because God's word is not just about informing us, but it's about transforming us. So I've done a bad job this evening if I give you some information. Um, but actually, if I step out of the way and God transforms our hearts, then that is brilliant. So um, choose somebody, pray for about 30 seconds. Three, two, one, go. Amen. So how good would that be if actually you just committed to pray for that person through the week? Maybe just pray that God would stir their hearts with uh, the things that we read this evening. And it is a tough passage that we read this evening, isn't it? I'm going to share a quick story with you. In 1945, a Swiss newspaper published a story by an anonymous reporter who had gained access to a series of underground tunnels in Cologne. And those tunnels had sheltered Jewish fugitives from the Gestapo, from the secret police. And so this is the eyewitness account. 
When I visited the shelter, I had the opportunity to see the emergency housing, fully equipped with a kitchen, bedroom, living room radio, a small library and oil lamps. Evidence of a stunning experience. Meals could only be prepared at night so as not to attract the Gestapo's attention. Who would have noticed the smoke during the day? Food had to be supplied by friends who willingly gave up a portion of their rations to help those unfortunate people living for weeks in utter darkness. The following inscription is written on the wall of one of those underground rooms. I believe in the sun, even in the darkness. I believe in God, even if God is silent. I believe in compassion, even if it must remain hidden. So we have a picture that actually we can relate to the sobering passage of scripture that we've just read. In the midst of indescribable hardship, we see people painfully clinging on to a good God. We see people who are able to hold the truth of who God is with the truth of their experience without denying either. So how do we make sense of a book like Lamentations? How do we acknowledge its historical significance and grasp its contemporary prescience? How? And how is, is a pretty pertinent word. It's perhaps the most pertinent word we can utter. And it calls us to think about the covenant between an all-loving, all-powerful God and then the situation that unfolds. And this is where I do a terrible bit of Hebrew. So if there are any Hebrew speakers in the room, I'm sorry, just very, very sorry. But interestingly, how is the word given to the book of Lamentations in the Hebrew scriptures? And it's translated something like Aika, which would bring up lots of guitar if I said it properly, so I won't say that. But actually, even if you look in the English translation, if you look in the first chapter, the second chapter and the fourth chapter, you will see that how is the first word of each of those chapters. And it's a question, it's a question that's rooted in an experience of suffering. It's an aching how that speaks of that suffering and we try and make sense of it. So I know you are deep into this series. I am grateful that um, Dan was only misspeaking when he said that you were deep into a series of, on Leviticus because I was hastily thinking, right, what can I speak about on Leviticus 4? But I am confident now that you are deep into a series on the Book of Lamentations and actually just want to really commend that because it's easy for us to cherry pick the bits of the Bible that feel nice and make sense to us immediately and just to continue um, reinforcing those things. But actually it's really brave to delve into something as challenging in this, but I think it's also really right to be doing so um, in you know, just the experience that so many of us had in the last year. So as you were all experts, I'm only gonna do a very brief recap. I'm not gonna reference where you can find the parallel texts in the Bible that speak of this history, but they're all there. And I'm sure if you listen to the last few weeks, then you will uncover those things. Um, this bit is important, I think. The text itself never reveals its authorship. So people speculate on who was the writer. Lots of people say that it's Jeremiah. And yeah, it may be, um, but it's not watertight. And there are reasons to, to question that. And so I suggest that we do what frequently I think we should do with scripture, which is just to take scripture at face value and to go with what it says. And so we have an anonymous author, but we have a reliable author. We have an eyewitness author. And this author writes in a way which is consistent with the history and the theology of the existing canon of scripture. And it describes a catastrophe. 
and I don't think that's too strong a word. It's the destruction of Israel, destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire in 587 BC. And so we can assume that this is written probably within the 60 years after that, um, because worship began to happen in a temple context about 60 years later. And this is clearly speaking into that gap. Uh, we know that you know, sometimes we read through scripture and somebody has arbitrarily written numbers to divide up different chapters and verses, but actually this is intentional. We're reading five poems. So chapter five, which you get to next week, won't do too many spoilers right now, but it stands out as this stream of consciousness. It's a cry for restoration. Chapters one, two, and four, they're linked. They've got an almost identical structure. Um, they're an acrostic poem that take in the Hebrew alphabet. And so we can learn from that, that this was to be memorized. And last week you looked at chapter three, which is an extension of that structure. And it beautifully speaks of hope breaking through. And in the midst of the rubble, the writer can proclaim, great is your faithfulness. Chapter four is a little bit of a letdown after the, the hope coming through of chapter three, but it's really, really important that we go there. It's bleak. There's a visceral descriptive power that paints a morbid and distressing picture with words. And where perhaps some of the other chapters, and I saw some kids in the screen earlier on, they might require a parental guidance certificate. This is full bore, hardcore, 18 rated horror. It's distressing to read it. It's easy for us to skip over scripture that we're familiar with and to almost to allow the potency to drip away. But actually when we read this slowly, it should shock us. It should disturb us. Uh, we read about a lack of compassion. We read about extreme poverty. We read about the shredding of royal robes, the reversal of actually where Jesus comes and brings another reversal to replace our rags with royal robes. We read about cannibalism. It's horrendous. And so if you want to go back and read this over the next week, you could probably divide it up into four parts just to help guide you through that. And so the first part is suffering. It's a detailed description of some of the horrors that are taking place. And then we're going to touch into the next part a little bit later on. It's the judgment of leaders, of leaders who have led the people astray. And that leads on to the power of enemies. But the enemies only have that power because that power has been given away by the leaders. And then it points to the end of suffering. And as all scripture does, it ultimately points to Jesus. But actually a little bit like those writers in the tunnels in Cologne, we've got to look quite hard for that. We've got to look quite hard for that story. And I want to encourage us to do that today. So, as I said, Ica was meant to be memorized. And as hard as it is to imagine, it's meant to be sung. Can you imagine if instead of those songs of quiet, reflective worship that we had on earlier on, if actually all of us were singing this song of destruction and misery? And yet actually, again, perhaps that challenges us in terms of how we pray and worship. It would be recited at the festival of Tisha B'Av. And it's not a festival as we might think of with bright lights and loud music, with joy and with feasting. This was a festival of mourning. This was a festival of prayer. This was a festival of fasting. And so the Jews would gather together to commemorate national disasters. And the two that they particularly would look at, which again, we will reference later on, are the destruction of the temple by the Romans in the first century. And then these events, the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonian empire. But before we consider that question, how? I'd like us just to pause and linger on some of that disturbing detail that we read and allow our hearts to be moved. 
allow the, the words to, to speak to us. Dan asked me to consider preaching on this um, a couple of months back, and, and probably on this response, there are some passages of scripture that you love the chance to speak on. So um, give me some Ephesians, throw me a bit of Nehemiah, um, let's dig into the Gospels together. Um, I'm there, but I don't know if, um, if preachers have a bucket list, but I suspect there aren't many that have Lamentations 4 at the top of their bucket list. And yet, as I say, the timing of reading those verses was so, so God-ordained and actually really, really pertinent for me in that moment. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hand. We see a, a demeaning of value of God's children we see those that are supposed to be cherished and treasured, waylaid, scattered, cast aside. And I told you a little bit about what I do for work, and, and that brings me into contact with a whole bunch of incredible children and young people. But some of them go through some really disturbing situations. So days after having a quick read through Lamentations 4, I don't tend to do weekly devotionals on Lamentations 4, um, and respect to any of you that do so. I found those words reverberating in my mind as tragic story after tragic story unfolded. A four-year-old boy rescued from an abusive family environment where he served as a drugs runner. An 11-year-old girl arriving at a local primary school um, with a suicide plan. A teenage lad paralyzed by anxiety as he relived the trauma of seeing his dad nearly die before his eyes. A 16-year-old that we'd known for eight, nine years, losing his life in a hit-and-run incident, whilst his friendship group was still reeling from the tragic loss by shooting of another friend less than 18 months before. Um, our team at Urban Devotion are working in different ways in each of those situations. They're facilitating the processing of a myriad range of emotions. They're working through the the scar tissue um, that no one should have to endure and certainly a four-year-old boy should never have to endure. Precious children, sacred gems are scattered on street corners. Their worth and value are undermined and diminished by the choices and perceptions of others. And so actually if we were in a room together, it might be a good time just to pause and pray. So let's do that as well. Let's maybe just allow some of those words, maybe as Andy read earlier on, there was something that stood out to you. Why don't we just pause for a second and just allow God to speak to us through that? So Lord, I don't know the different stories that are in us and around us, but I thank you that your word speaks to them. And so, Lord, whether right now actually there's a feeling of thanksgiving that that's not our story, or whether this has caused us to think about some of the situations facing people that we know and we love, Lord Jesus, would you just give us your heart in those situations? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, as is so often the case, um, these scriptures gave language to a pain that I was not um, able to express. Um, and so I want to encourage you to read the text in the same way. To, if Lamentations 4 is new to you, actually to take it away over this next week, 
to do it in the same way, to allow some of the language to give expression to what's going on for you and do the same next week when you look at Lamentations 5. We're unlikely to have experienced anything like what is described, but we do know what pain looks like. We know what it sounds like. We know what it feels like. And we've also witnessed the aftermath of poor choices. We've got some understanding of societal injustice. So how? The big word of lamentations how did it come to this how did it come to this where you have god's people with god's promises and god's love and protection end up in this state and the answer lies in 500 years of narrative history which those of you doing the odd yawn right now be very pleased to know that i'm not going to take you through year by year um, but i do encourage you to read through i do encourage you to read through the old testament and just ask that question how did we come to this um, you'll also see some of this form as you begin to look at the book of Exodus um, in a few weeks time. You start to see the, the seeds of that rebellion just grow and grow and man's pride and self-sufficiency just come and provide an obstacle between us really stepping into what it is to know um, the fullness of God's love for us. And the answer lies in God's people time after time forsaking their God to the extent of worshipping other gods. The answer lies in king after king rebelling against God and defiling both the throne and the temple in pursuit of their own glory. And so verse 12, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, it gives us a clue as to the patience of a God who's actually holding back judgment. It's easy for us to read Lamentations and think, why would God do that for 500 years? 500 years of a covenant, 500 years of a communication of a promise. God's holding back judgment to allow a chance for true repentance. And if you look at the story of King Josiah, actually he turns to God with his whole heart. And so God delays this. But despite the fact that God's people are living in rebellion, we read the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Just think about that 500 years of rebelling against the one who protects you to the extent that actually all the other nations around said that it will never happen. No one's ever going to get into Jerusalem and suddenly it falls. And there's a, there's a parallel with the story of Rahab and Jericho, because there we've got this picture of Israel being afraid to enter the city of Jericho because they lack confidence in God. And yet the stories of their exploits have reached the people of Jericho. So that in turn, Jericho are petrified of the people of Israel. It's almost um, comedy. In Lamentations, we see this contrast between the internal corruption and the perception of the people outside. And we see God staying his hand and staying his hand and protecting his people, but still they don't turn to him. And so we get to verse 13 and 14. And in a sense, they summarize the sin that leads to judgment. And there's a challenge for those of us that lead anything here, because actually there is a higher warning. There is um, a sense of doom around the leaders that have led God's people in this way. And the writer puts it really plainly. It happened because of the sins of her people, the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Let's just quickly unpack that. It talks about prophets, it talks about priests, later on it talks about a king. The prophet's role was to see, was to hear, and was to warn. They were God's messengers to instruct God's people in godly living. And yet here we see that they are blinded by their sin. They can't see, they can't hear, and so they're not warning. The priests, their role, there was to teach 
and it was to administer sacrifices. Again, some of us might see that as an alien concept, requires a lot of reading to understand it. But essentially, the sacrifice was the means by which God made his people okay to come before him. And it was prophetically pointing towards Jesus. So they would offer an animal sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, to make them righteous. And Jesus ultimately becomes a once and for all sacrifice to make us right with God. But this priestly role, it required them to be without blemish. The only blood that they were allowed to come into contact with was the blood of sacrifice. And after that point, they would then be ceremonially unclean in the days following and have to go through rituals to, to be able to fulfill their roles again. But tragically, instead of playing their part in making the people righteous, we read that they themselves are shedding the blood of those that they're, made, they're supposed to make righteous. They're defiled by the blood of the very ones that they are appointed to serve and to protect. We'll skip on a little bit into verse 20. And this is speaking about the king, the Lord's anointed. Our very life breath was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. Again, I've used the word tragedy a few times, and it's not too powerful a word. It's not just the prophets. It's not just the priests, but it's the king. It's the one who's seen as God's anointed, the one in whom the people had placed their confidence, who's gone astray. Essentially, it's the enemy within rather than the enemy outside who condemns the people. And for this, the writer laments. Again, we can step back and we can consider our own situations. Sometimes as God's people, we're very quick to point the finger outside and we're very slow to come before God with genuine repentance. In the late 1960s, the Russian Orthodox priest Gleb Yakunin was imprisoned for 20 years when he highlighted the links between the Russian Orthodox Church and the KGB. And when he was released 20 years later, as um, communism was changing, was melting, um, he found that his fears were completely corroborated by documentation. He discovered um, that most of the senior members of the Russian Orthodox Church, when he was arrested, were actually on the payroll of the KGB. And he found out the tactics of the KGB. And this is a little bit, um, again, it's a bit disturbing. Their role wasn't just to appoint atheists as leaders. Actually, what they would look for is to recruit charismatic young male leaders to positions of authority within the church because they knew they had egos that could be manipulated and exploited and ultimately they would compromise. More recently in our country, we've seen a number of tragic abuse scandals in the UK church and figures who were seen as exemplars of good moral leadership and sound doctrine. They'd inflicted suffering on those supposedly on their care. They'd covered it up through coercion and control. Some of you this evening will be relieved that you don't need to clock watch um, for nine o'clock and the start of line of duty. I can see your faces. I know that that was some of you last week and the week before. Um, so close your ears for a second if you are planning to catch up um, because there will be a little spoiler here. Last week, many people were disappointed in the finale of line of duty because actually in their heart of hearts, they wanted a big enemy that they could hate on. They wanted somebody to rise up as the architect of all that went wrong, and then we could point the finger at them. But instead, the stench of corruption had so permeated the fictitious police force that widespread corruption was masked by the guise of incompetence, and it was allowed through the naked ambition of people that just wanted promotion and power. 
And then Hastings, who's the unconventional hero of the series, I'm not going to do an impression of him right now, um, is heard to lament. When did we stop caring about honesty and integrity? Those three stories as little illustrations of what happens in Lamentations, the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. How did we get here? We got here by placing our confidence in those who did not warrant it. The people of Israel rebelled and turned away from God, and we faced the same temptation to lose sight of our saviour and our king. And yet there is hope. So how do we respond? Well, first, we open our eyes and then we lament. So if you've got, um, I don't know, if you've got flexible fingers, you could put your finger now in Luke 19. Um, and so I'm going to just draw a quick parallel between two eyewitnesses accounts. Um, so we've got our eyewitness account in Lamentations, but actually there's an eyewitness account of our saviour looking down on Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. There are similarities, aren't there? Both eyewitness perspectives of the city of Jerusalem. In Lamentations, we see the author mourn the destruction of the city. In verse 20, again, we see that God's people had put their trust in a king who let them down. But in Luke 19, Jesus has just been greeted and misunderstood as a warrior king. And there's an expectation that he will claim back power by force from the Romans. We see in Lamentations that people have trusted a king who would lead them into ruin. But in Luke, we see the people misunderstand a king and they will eventually abandon a king who will never abandon them. Both Jesus and the writer of Lamentations have a kingdom of God perspective within their laments. Their laments are not without hope and we need to have the same. Jesus famously taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And to pray this is to acknowledge that the world is not as it should be. And I'd like to challenge us in it. I pray that prayer with our team at work every, every lunchtime. And I keep stumbling over praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, as I think about the world around me. Because the world is not currently as Jesus would have it to be. The world is not currently entirely dominated by his will. And so to pray those words without lament, not to express grief for injustice, suffering and pain, is to risk praying empty words from an apathetic heart. Jesus is troubled by the world as he sees it, and so must we be. I haven't got time to go into um, a story of something that we've been praying into as a family for um, months and months and months, and we're just not seeing the answer. Um, but we've really been pressing in to God as a family. And my 13-year-old my said something really, really profound to me a few weeks ago, where she said, Dad, it's not that I'm losing my faith, but I am losing my trust. We prayed over and again for quite specific things and started to see those specific answers to prayer seemingly come true. And then our hopes were dashed. She said, I'm not losing my faith, but I am losing my trust. 40% of the Psalms are expressions of lament whereas about 5% of the songs sung by U.S. evangelical churches in a recent study contained lament. 
And I've led worship for about 25 years, and I don't think it's much different here. We avoid lament. We minimize the language of lament. As Christians, I think we can be at risk of adopting a triumphalistic posture that metaphorically at least it skips past the pain of good friday it avoids the crushing disappointment of holy saturday and we fast forward on to the joy the hope the release of resurrection sunday but then we forget the work of formation that jesus does in the midst of the pain we forget what he did with those two disciples as they were trudging along the road to emmaus and we end up trading lament for a willful amnesia and it means we substitute joy for comfort the past year has been tough for so many, hasn't it? Many of us will have experienced a deeper level of anxiety than we've been used to. Some of us will have felt the pang of loneliness just bite like never before. We'll have encountered maybe financial hardship. Some of us will have lost friends and loved ones. But positively in the midst of that, there's been a, a greater openness to talk about our mental health, to make ourselves vulnerable, to be honest. And actually in that context, lament almost seems on trend. And I applaud that, but I want to encourage us to go a bit further than openness and vulnerability. Actually, I want us to go further than just the personal openness and vulnerability, but to step into that as God's people together. Malcolm Duncan is a respected pastor and Bible teacher who has experienced just a huge amount of tragedy of suffering. I've been around him when he's had multiple family members commit suicide. Unexplainable pain. And um, a few years ago, his dad died and he wasn't able just to be a mourning child because he needed to take the funeral service. His dad didn't know Jesus. And so these are Malcolm Duncan's words. I'd ask God every single day for 16 years to bring my father to a personal place of repentance and faith in Jesus. I was convinced it would happen. Yet here I was about to conduct his funeral and I had no idea whether God had answered that prayer or not. So I wept over his body. I held on to the side of his coffin and I sobbed. Alone with no one watching but God, I let my heart break. My tears fell on his corpse, my hands shook, my head ached and the questions began to erupt from my heart like a round of artillery fire at God. Why did you let him die? Why did you do this? Why didn't you answer me? Why didn't you do something to help? What are you going to do now? What do you want from me? Where are you? Don't you care? The bullets just kept firing, bang, 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 and then it subsided. I ran out of ammunition. I had no bullets left to fire, so I stopped. The sobbing continued, but the purpose changed. Now I was sobbing and saying to God, I can't take another step without you. I can't get through this day without you. I need you more than I've ever needed you, and I feel you less than I ever have. I both trust God and struggle with him. I believe in him and I wonder where he is. The two things sometimes exist side by side in my head and heart. I love the humility and honesty to be able to share that. It's challenging. So how do we allow those two things, trust and struggle, to exist side by side? Without lament, I question how honest our prayers are, how full of integrity our worship is. And I want to move beyond saying that it's okay to lament, but challenge us to join with the Jews, Heidi and Cologne, 
to join with the, the refugees who are fleeing persecution, to join with Malcolm, to join with the psalmist, to join with the writer of Lamentations, to join with Jesus. We, we must lament. And as we lament, we allow a deeper picture of the kingdom of God to form in our hearts and in our minds. We acknowledge that we need more of God. We need more of his rule. We need more of his reign. And so rather than ending it with a nice punchy conclusion, I actually want to encourage us to adopt the posture of Jesus looking upon his city. And I want to suggest that we look upon our city, that we look upon Erdington, that we look upon the neighborhoods and the streets that we call home and we lament together. The together bit is really important. So often we end up in our silos, but Lamentations was not meant to be read quietly on our own. It was meant to be recited or sung together. So practically, those who are able, I just want to encourage us to, to use the chat in a moment. So if you want to get yourself ready to do that, then do. But I want to encourage us to step out of our silos. I want to encourage us to begin expressing our lamentations over our city, over Erdington. I shared some of those stories earlier on of a young man whose life was tragically cut short by a hit and run incident. Um, we've seen people that we know shot. We've seen the victims of knife crime, all of those different types of things. But also I see food poverty on a weekly basis. And so why don't we just be quiet? in a moment and we're going to use the chat function just to type in some of your laments some of the things that you're praying for and i think after that we're just going to close with a with a declaration of god's goodness of his of his faithfulness but i noticed an andy referenced psalm 27 earlier on and actually if you keep reading through psalm 27 this is what the psalmist says i remain confident of this i will see the goodness of the lord in the land of the living Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so as we bring our laments, we're owning the fact that the world doesn't currently look as we'd long for it to. We're owning the fact that we don't see God's influence stretch and expand into all the areas that we'd love it to. But we can say this, I remain confident of this. I will see, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So why don't we just start to write some of our prayers in the chat and actually that could start to populate your prayers as a church um, for the city that you're called to, for the neighbourhood that you sit in. So some of us who are, are more extroverted will start to feel a little bit uncomfortable with the quiet, but we're deliberately just staying in a place of quiet for a moment. It's, it's not comfortable actually to name some of the things that we see.
And I know some of you might struggle with the, um, the chat function, but just be, be speaking those prayers out just wherever you are. As we just keep adding to this, actually, these descriptions, they could substitute, couldn't they, into lamentations. Some of the things that we're describing are horrendous things that are a blight on our society. And they're holding back people from being everything that God created them to be. And so, again, we hold the tension of acknowledging these things with a God who is good, a God who is loving, a God who is powerful. So I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to hand back to Andy. Um, Lord, I just want to thank you for this family of people. I actually want to thank you for the way that you've placed them in this part of the city. God, I thank you for the, the geographical base of the coffee shop on the high street and of all that actually will be witnessed there. Lord, just the sense that over the, the coming weeks and months that many, many things will step out of the shadows. God, we know that some of the things that we've described in the chat, whether it's, um, it's the trafficking of people, whether it's domestic abuse, that those things have been happening in the shadows. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to pray for your light. Lord, in the same way as that reporter discovered the, the tunnels, Lord Jesus, we pray for your light to shine on the things that are hidden. And Lord, we don't understand it. God, would you break our hearts for those things? God, we read the, the generational split in, in Lamentations and say, Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of the fathers and the mothers back to the children. Father, you'd bring restoration. And so, Lord, as Oikos continue to journey through this book, I pray that you would just deepen almost their language of prayer as a community of people, that you would create that safety and that space for heart cries to be shared. And that, Lord Jesus, you would bring your transformation, that we could pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Andy, back to you. Amen. Thank you, Andy. Um, thank you for, for bringing that to us and leading us in that way. I'm just going to read those last two verses from Psalm 27 again. Um, and then we're just going to, as Andy says, close with a, a, a song of declaration, uh, because this is the truth. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So, Heavenly Fathers, we began seeking to wait on you uh, this evening. We want to continue that now and we want to continue that as we mull over and maybe reread the passage and think about what Andy has said and what that might mean for us. Um, 
as individuals and as a church, but we want to wait on you and we want to wait in your presence.